Happy holidays, and thanks for listening to the American Hospital Association's Advancing Health podcast. We hope you have found it useful and informative. As we wind up 2022, we wanted to re-release a couple of our most popular episodes from the past year. Advancing Health returns with new episodes in 2023. In the meantime, enjoy this one, and we hope you and your family have a safe and wonderful holiday and a happy new year. Hello, everyone. This is John Regi from the American Hospital Association, your senior advisor for cybersecurity and risk. Thanks for joining us again for another episode in our continuing Cyber and Risk podcast series, Frontline Perspective. In this series, we feature highly accomplished leaders from the healthcare field, cybersecurity industry, and government. Today's episode is truly unique and is truly a frontline perspective. Today, we will have the rare opportunity to speak with the leaders of a health system, which became the victim of a major ransomware attack in the fall of 2020, which not only resulted in a disruption of services in their organization, but also had a statewide impact to other hospitals. Joining me today is Dr. Stephen Leffler, CEO and Chief Operating Officer of the University of Vermont Medical Center, and Dr. Douglas Gentile, Senior Vice President for Information Technology of the University of Vermont Medical Center. They have graciously agreed for the benefit of the entire field to share their inside story and their truly frontline perspective on the attack, how it happened, how they responded and mitigated the attack. Most importantly, they will talk about what they learned and how those lessons learned can help all of us prevent a ransomware attack and help us respond when a ransomware attack occurs. And they will occur. Let me introduce Dr. Leffler, a true Vermonter. He has worked at the University of Vermont for 28 years after earning both his undergraduate and medical degrees from UVM. He has served in multiple leadership and high profile roles at the hospital over the last decade, most recently as the quality officer of UVM Health Network from 2017 to 2019, and as the chief medical officer from 2011 to 2017. He previously worked as the president of the medical staff and director of the emergency department and has served on the boards of Vermont Managed Care and One Care Vermont. Dr. Gentile is the senior vice president for information technology for the University of Vermont Health Network. In that role, he is responsible for IT infrastructure, IT security, and all applications across the health network. Dr. Gentile did his undergraduate training at Duke University and received his MD from the Medical College of Wisconsin. In 1991, he was awarded a Hartford Foundation Fellowship to study health policy and received an MBA from the Stanford University Graduate School of Business. In 1995, Dr. Gentile joined Allscripts Healthcare Solutions, where he was the chief medical officer for strategy until 2013 when he joined the UVM Health Network. So Dr. Leffler and Dr. Gentile, I know you both scold me when I use your formal titles and Steve and Doug always prefer that I use their first names. So we'll go with that for today. So Steve and Doug, 
maybe we can start off with just by explaining of how and when you learned of the breach. What time of day was it? And how long after the malicious behavior was detected were you notified? Steve, maybe why don't we start with you? Yeah, so it was in the late morning and I was between meetings and I went to check my email and my email was down, which I thought was odd, but not you know crazy unusual. So I didn't think a lot of it. And I went to my next meeting and when I got back from my next meeting, my email was still down. And then I was seeing there was some indications I was hearing from my team that also internet was down, Epic, our electronic medical record was down. And at that point, it felt like it might be a little bit bigger. So it was probably, I think, around 11 in the morning when I noticed my email was down. And by, say, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, it was clear that this was more than just a quick email mm -hmm. outage. Doug, maybe we could uh, get your perspective as well. Yeah, so we, um, as Steve noted, we started receiving calls. We in IT started receiving calls around a little bit after 11 that morning of October 28th. They were impacting some of our critical systems, so we immediately followed our procedure and launched an IT Incident Command Center to start to investigate the issues. It was probably around 2 o'clock where we uh, found a definitive indicator that this was a ransomware attack. It was basically a note text file deposited on one of our servers. It did not have a ransom per se. It did not have a dollar amount. It simply said, we've encrypted your information. Here's how you contact us. Um, so at that point, we had validated that Epic, our electronic health record, had not been impacted. So at that point, uh, we knew we had a ransomware attack. So we gracefully and deliberately took Epic down to protect it from uh, any possible spread of the malware to Epic. And at that point, we also notified Steve and the hospital incident command that we had a major cyber issue, as well as our, the senior leaders of the health network. So it's pretty clear, obviously, based on what you were seeing, it was a ransomware attack. And then you immediately, it sounds like once that was confirmed, you notified. Steve, did you feel that you were notified like in a timely manner based on the seriousness of the situation? And was it truly understood that this was an actual attack and not perhaps some type of uh, other type of incident that may not result in encryption of files? John, I, I did feel like um, our IT team was doing all the right steps in the background. And it wasn't long after two o'clock when they knew what it was that they let me and the other leaders know. So I, I felt that I was aware of everything that was important to know as soon as they had information. Steve, what was the first decision you had to make and who did you initially discuss the incident with and notify? The first decision you have to make when your electronic medical record is down is should you go to paper. Providers don't wanna do that. They wanna hold out. So if you think it's gonna be down for, you know, three to six hours or something, they'll typically hold out, write their notes on paper, and then when the system comes back up, put that all on the record. So it's a big decision to tell the whole organization we're switching from the EMR to actually going to paper documentation. So at two o'clock, we asked IT, is this gonna be an overnighter or longer? And they were like, this is a big deal. It's gonna be longer, so make the switch to paper. So at that point, we set up our incident command, our clinical incident command, and we started making decisions about making the switch to really our downtime procedures. Incident command comes up, and it was really the clinical leadership team at the hospital that was making decisions through our IT normal incident command structure. Steve, one follow up on that. So now you know this is going to be, this is a major attack. You've gone to paper. What were the most immediate impacts of the attack on your organization once you realized that? Everything was down. 
So our phones were down. We no longer have fax machines. Epic was down. You couldn't use email to communicate. So communication was actually a big deal. That first evening, we actually sent people over to the Best Buy to buy walkie-talkies. And we realized we had no mechanism for getting critical lab values back to the floor. So we literally started having runners bring critical information to the floors. Communication for that first, not all night, they actually figured it out pretty quickly, but between I would say noon and about 8 p.m., getting information out to the staff on the floors was extremely difficult. Our All of our phones are through the computer. We no longer have fax machines. So that was very challenging in that first period of time. Thanks, Steve. Doug, from your perspective now, you're in full downtime procedures across the organization. What were the most immediate impacts that you saw as the chief medical information officer? The first and most immediate impact um, were the ones that Steve has already described. So Epic being down, most of our infrastructure actually being taken down as part of this cyber attack. So the impact that Steve indicated were widespread. So our immediate focus was on a couple things. One was how do we protect further systems of taking Epic down, for example. And then two, how do we facilitate communication You know, when um, phone systems are down, faxes down, emails down. So it was really pretty much the same concerns that Steve has already articulated, at least in that first afternoon after this hit. Doug, um, I'm going to just follow up with you all here on a, another question here. So you're managing the technical response to the attack. And often we have seen that organizations in response to that attack feel the need to disconnect with good reason from the internet as this malware may be beaconing out to their command and control node looking for instructions to further spread and execute the encryption. Doug, let me ask you, was University of Vermont disconnected from the internet in response to the attack as a defensive measure? And if so, who made that decision? And how long after the attack was detected did, did that disconnection occur? Yeah, good question, John. So when we realized it was a ransomware attack, we obviously, our team went, uh, was all hands on deck investigating it. We also had a retainer uh, with a forensic company that we immediately triggered to help them investigate as well. You know, by that late that evening, that night, we recognized that this was a very widespread attack. They actually encrypted about 1,300 servers. They also deposited malware on 5,000 endpoints, so end-user computers. So at that point, and it was early that next, that following morning, we made the decision that we needed to disconnect from the internet um, and all um, external network connections. That was both to block any further attacks, as you just indicated, from the attackers. We knew that that, that was a likely occurrence if we didn't uh, respond to their note. But it was also to prevent the spread to any of our affiliates or partners. So that decision was made the next morning. My IT group said, this is what we need to do. I notified senior leaders that this is the steps we were going to take, and here's why, and we did it. So it was a very quick process. Um, it was, we have to do this, notify the appropriate leaders, they gave their okay, and we went. So interesting. Doug, did you actually have the opportunity to notify Steve at that point, or was were you informing him after the fact? So when I, after immediately after the discussion with my team, I notified Steve, I notified our CEO of the Health Network, our 
chief operating officer for the health network, our general counsel, et cetera, and said, this is what we're doing. Here's why. And they all said, do it. So um, it was sort of all simultaneous, if you will. Steve, from your perspective, what were you feeling when, when Doug told you, hey, this is what we're doing. We're going to disconnect the entire system from the internet, become somewhat of an island, a technical island, without having the opportunity to actually weigh in on that decision. What were your thoughts at that point? I'll start with, I've known Doug for a really long time. He's an ER doctor like I am, and we've taken care of a lot of sick patients together over many years. And so he was very clear about what had to happen and why, and he got no pushback from any of those leaders. He said, if we don't disconnect, we're going to keep this problem going. We could infect our other network affiliate hospitals or potentially other hospitals in the state that we're connected to. So he was very clear about why it had to happen. He had um, good information for us, and we were totally supportive of him doing his job to, to keep this thing from getting worse. So interesting how the clinical training was actually valuable in making a need to make a command decision in an urgent situation and informing those who need to be informed. So let, let me talk a little bit about process, right? Uh, we hear this uh, often in the incident response plans, and I see it, that the process to disconnect the organization is not often well thought out. Was there a documented policy on who had the designated authority and delegated authority to make that extremely critical decision to disconnect the organization from the internet in an urgent situation? I have to be honest, John, if there was a policy, I hadn't seen it or um, knew about it. Before this, I always thought that, you know, cyber attacks were something you read about happening to other places. And I have told this Doug a bunch of times when he would come talk to us about cybersecurity, that was when I would probably look at my phone or something. I don't, I no longer do that. Right. So I don't know if we had a written policy, but IT team was very clear in what had to happen and why. And they came to us with saying, we have to do this. So I don't think there was any concern. And as I told you, all the leaders across the network totally supported them. It was already done, I think, by the time you came to us, honestly, Doug, which is fine. It was the right thing to do to keep us safe. That's interesting. And I think a great model in a sense, too. We can plan all day long for the, every contingency, but not every plan. You can't plan for every contingency in an incident response plan. This is one of the major areas we look at, but it's great to have a team that you have confidence in and they feel empowered to make these emergency decisions when they need to and clearly demonstrates that hopefully folks are capable and will do what needs to be done, whether there is a plan or not. Doug, let me get back to you on a little bit more of a technical question. Were the backups impacted by the ransomware? What was the status of the backups? So uh, we were fortunate, so, and, and John, that's another reason why we felt we had to disconnect from the internet. So our backups were not impacted. They were clean, we had validated that, but they were at risk. You already indicated we know the pattern of many of these attackers is to come back in and do further damage. So that was a, another reason we, we felt we had to disconnect. But fortunately, we were, I guess some, we were fortunate in this case where our backups were all intact, not impacted at all. So a very good thing and perhaps a saving grace for later on to assist in your recovery. Steve, from your perspective, once the decision was made to disconnect from the internet, what was the cascading effect of that decision internally and externally? One of the major issues is we're the reference hospital for most of the other hospitals in the state of Vermont. And so we had connections out to all of those other hospitals. 
this was during uh, COVID. So we were getting COVID results from across the state and we were the hospital doing most of that laboratory information. So people were waiting for results for all kinds of studies. And so I started calling hospital presidents to make sure they were aware of the situation that we had done this to help protect them. Many of them wanted to make sure they were disconnected from us as they knew this was happening. So they were reassured by the fact that that connection was stopped. And I basically said, I'm sorry, this is happening. We're gonna do our best to get the results back to you. It might be bumpy for a couple of days, but we'll build out a, a new system. And to a person, they were um, grateful for the phone call, supportive in ways they could be, and then went back to their teams and said, hey, start figuring out with the people how we can get our results back. COVID didn't stop because we had a cyber attack or all the other patient care things that we do. Right. So you're dealing with two crises at the same time. You're dealing with hospitals filled with COVID patients. You're subject to this ransomware attack. And I think in many ways, it's beneficial for a small st smaller state where everyone knows everyone. And you reached out and looks sounds like folks just came shoulder to shoulder and did what they had to do. Doug, from your perspective, now you've disconnected from the internet and you have all these systems to try to restore. What were the cascading effects of that decision from your perspective? You know, again, I think Steve has just, the, the cascading effects were really not so much IT as they were the impact on the organization and our ability to, you know, carry on normal operation. You know, for example, our imaging systems were down. So that impacted the kinds of procedures we could do, the kinds of um, care we could provide. Our focus in IT was really on how do we, as quickly as possible, restore systems so that we can begin operating again. I think that the impacts were really more on the clinical operational side, frankly. We knew what we had to do in IT. Our systems were encrypted. We need to, you know, we needed to clean and rebuild. But major implications on the, the clinical and operational side, obviously. Doug, speaking of documentation and plans, can you describe when and how your cyber incident response plan was activated? I know you mentioned there was some activation notification in the beginning. Did everyone that needed access to those plans have access to them, either through soft or paper copies? Yeah, so so fortunately we did have access to our downtime procedures, particularly on the EMR side, the electronic health record side. We have computers that are not connected to the network deliberately for the purpose. So they were able to print out uh, information on the patients. They were able to print out order sets, all of the information that we have in our downtime computers. I think that there are a couple challenges. One is as much as we encourage people to practice these procedures, it's hard to do. Uh, people are busy. They have lots of things on the plate. This is not a high priority, you know, when things are going well for them to practice. So we did have to go out and really work sort of side by side with folks to reacquaint them with the procedures, make sure they knew how to access the information. Many of our residents and young physicians had never written paper orders, they'd never written paper notes. We actually had a bunch of our informatics folks, team members out uh, in the hospital uh, working with those uh, providers. The other challenge is at that time, Epic was recommending only three to five days worth of information in your downtime computers. We were down for almost three weeks. So very quickly, we uh, did not have schedules for patients coming in to the clinics. We didn't have, you know, basic health information for patients, you know, coming into the hospital. And so that became a, a, probably the primary focus 
early on was how do we get into the system to get that information for our providers. So John, I, I'll just add to what Doug said. Very quickly, we didn't have basic information like who was scheduled for an appointment tomorrow. We didn't know who actually was going to come to the clinic and we didn't have phones for some period of time. Our phones were out. And so that was very, very challenging. So we would have people show up to the office, but the schedule was gone. We also had um, patients who had care plans that were difficult to assess. And so we really prioritized with the IT team to as quickly as possible, get us schedules, get us care plans so we can go on maintaining the care for the people that we serve. Thanks, Steve. That's, I think, very important for the listeners to understand. There will be certain issues that they will face with an IT outage that perhaps are not uh, embedded in their incident response model, the scheduling, the increased need for staffing, so forth. I can tell you that's probably not accounted for in many incident response plans. Steve, as capable as Doug and your team are, most ransomware attack victims rely on outside resources to help them restore. Can you tell us what outside resources came in to assist you in your attack? John, at a high level, we very quickly contacted the FBI and they came to support the criminal investigation for what happened. And we do have cyber insurance and they do have a, a component of the cyber insurance that does help assist you in um, recovering from the attack. And so we notified them quickly. I also know on more of the technical side that we have retainers for some companies, which I'm sure Doug can talk about, that would help us basically rebuild our systems. Thanks, Steve. Yes, I think a lot of organizations rely on the cyber insurance response assets to come in and assist. And sometimes they're not quite aware that when those assets come in, often they're in charge and uh, they may dictate to the organization. Just as a side follow-up, was that the situation there at UVM with the insurance outside assets or you all maintain control and command? We maintained full control of our response, both on the IT side and the clinical side. Yeah, John, I can add a little bit there. So, because I was dealing with them on a day-to-day -day basis. So we did contact them, we did alert them. They did offer those services because we already had a retainer with a forensics cyber unit. We had engaged with them, they were assisting us. We really didn't use those services from the insurance companies because we didn't need to, but we were in contact obviously with them. So they were aware and kept them up to speed, but, but they didn't really provide resources for us. Understood. Steve, back to you. We touched on it briefly concerning perhaps some challenges regarding extended downtime procedures. From your perspective, how big a challenge was that on uh, resorting to extended downtime procedures with the staff? It was a huge challenge, John. We practiced downtime for six hours. We had done an upgrade in the previous year where we had a little bit longer downtime, but the staff here is actually quite good at dealing with six to 12 hours. But the difference between 12 hours and 28 days is huge. It's interesting that the first two weeks were very challenging as we kept uncovering problems and solving them. At about the two week point, people actually got pretty good at being back on paper and using charts. And we set up a lot of systems that the old time docs like Doug and I remember, but for our, our newer, younger docs, they had never documented on paper. I literally on that first day that we were down was rounding and the chairman of pediatrics was teaching his interns how to do paper admission orders, like literally on the board. They had never done it. Amazing. I bet you have one of the most 
proficient staffs now uh, on using paper and downtime procedures, right? One residual, tough way to learn, but a lesson that will probably stick, I imagine. I hope never have to test it again, John. <laughs> right, but I think you'll be definitely better prepared. Doug, from a technical perspective, what was your biggest challenge? The first challenge that we just talked about, John, was getting access to patient information. As I mentioned, we had 1,300 servers that were encrypted, and we had over 5,000 end-user devices that had malware on them. So we knew it was going to take several weeks to clean the malware, rebuild all of those servers, clean all of those lab, those uh, end-user devices. So we had to get information about our patients beyond the three days that were in our downtime computer. So that was the initial focus. We did uh, set up a backdoor working with Epic into the Epic system so we could print out the information uh, on who was coming in, what the schedules were, the basic health information about that patient. We also worked with our HIE, Vital, here in uh, Vermont. Uh, we send data to Vital on a you know, daily basis. So our providers were actually able to get on their phones, log into the vital database and see problems, meds, allergies, sort of core information about their patients in those first few days, which was also really helpful. So once we sort of addressed that information, the second big challenge was, again, restoring 1,300 servers, rebuilding them. You know, our domain controllers were down. We had no active directory, so we had to rebuild all of those components. And we had to actually go out and bring in 5,000 end-user devices, completely re-image them to eliminate any malware on them. So that was the second challenge. And then third was, again, restoring all of the applications. And there we worked very closely with Steve and the clinical team to prioritize the order in which we brought you know, over 800 applications up um, over the next several weeks. Monumental tasks to incur. People think 28 days is a long time, but to restore an entire system, all those servers in endpoint, really, really you have to be commended. It de while dealing with a COVID crisis and trying to serve your, I think it's 13 additional hospitals in the state. Steve, let me get back to you. I know we talked about, you had contacted law enforcement, the insurance company, I think you mentioned outside counsel. I had to ask, were those actions or notifications actually incorporated into the incident response plan? And of course, being former FBI, I have to ask, were you satisfied with the FBI's response? John, one of the smartest things I think we actually did, it was about day two or day three. It was very early in this process. We had, we were kind of combining incident command from the hospital, which is really clinically driven, and the IT one, and, and they were mixing and it wasn't productive for either side. There was too many clinical questions getting put into IT when they wanted to focus on the next step of the IT work. And we also, on the clinical side, weren't getting the one or two key things we needed. So we had a quick call with Doug and his team, and we said, look, we think we should break these apart. Do IT first, and I can't remember, Doug, you guys did it at 7.30 or 8 in the morning. It was early. They did their first, and one of my leaders would always be on that one to listen in. Oftentimes, it was me. And then right after that, we had a clinical IT command that was focused on clinical care. What are the critical things we have to do today? What is our ask of IT? And Doug or Lori joined every single day on that. And I actually think that really helped us. We had good communication back and forth because the right leaders were there, but we weren't taking up IT time focused on very clinically driven decisions and questions. And 
they came to ours and could really focus on the one or two key things like when can we get schedules? How can we get these schedules up? And we literally would prioritize things from our, our incident command and IT would work on those first. And they would come and say, look, we have this many people. If you ask for this, we're going to slow this one down. And we would actually have conversations and decide what was most important every day. So really interesting, almost as we would do in a law enforcement or intelligence or military, two separate streams of actions but closely coordinated and your priorities coming down from the leadership for the technical team. Steve, just following up on that, we talked about the challenges. Can you tell us what you think some of your best practices were and what were you most surprised by that worked and didn't work? The thing I'm actually most proud of is early on, it was in the first couple of days, we set up a clinical leadership team our chairman of the Department of Surgery, chair of anesthesia, critical care, emergency medicine, oncology, radiology. And this team every day came together and looked at the patients that were in the hospital that had come in to see care and decided who could get care that day safely, who needed to be sent to another location, who could be deferred, who could, who could wait a little while. And we relied on that team every day. They met every single day of the cyber attack. And during that cyber attack, we were able to do open heart surgeries here safely. We were able to stage cancers. We were able to do important work. We did send some people to our partner hospitals in the region when it made sense to do that. And I really think that served us unbelievably well. About day two, I went down to pathology and there was 3,000 lab sheets and paper spread out across their conference room. And we were using medical students and nursing students to file all that paperwork. And by about the third day, they had filing cabinets in there like the old days. They had, And you could go to any patient in the hospital and pull those records. I think that worked really well. I think the biggest, the things I was most surprised about is not having schedules. Like realizing that you're not going to know who's showing up in your office today was unbelievably difficult. And I would say one of the biggest take-homes from this is you need to have way more than three days of information on the population of patients that you serve. I, I would say a month. I don't know if a month is possible to store or not, but three days is not nearly enough. Yeah, that's tremendously helpful to hear that. I can tell you, I almost guarantee you that's not planned for in cyber incident response and the schedules and so forth, unless it's a truly cross-function incident response plan, including HR and so forth, but really insightful perspectives there and what you learned the hard way, quite frankly. Steve, I think you know I'm going to ask you this next question. It's what all our listeners are waiting to hear. Can you tell us if you paid the ransom? We did not pay the ransom. Our understanding from our IT team was that the infrastructure was damaged enough that there was no assurances that paying the ransom would work. We did never get an actual amount, as Doug has already told you, and so uh, we did not pay. That's great to hear. You know, uh, my feeling on that and the official position of the AHA, we follow the FBI's position, of course, strongly, highly discourage those ransom payments because it just encourages them to conduct these attacks and funds them and funds them to conduct attacks on other hospitals or perhaps more serious crimes, including terrorism. Doug, in closing, from your perspective as the Senior Vice President for Information Technology, in knowing what you know now, having been the victim of a major ransomware attack, what advice would you give our listeners? So a couple things. One is, Cybersecurity isn't one of your top two or three priorities. It has to be. 
the cost of an extended downtime like this far exceeds anything you're going to put into a robust cybersecurity program. So it has to be a top priority today. Second, I think one of the things that we did best in this was that we literally had our the chief operating officer for the health network. We had the chief counsel. We had the um, head of our communications, marketing and communications, literally side by side with us for the first two weeks of the cyber attack, sitting in the same room with us. There are dozens of decisions you have to make in those first couple of weeks. And just having that ability to quickly communicate with those key leaders was incredibly helpful. Um, and I think one of the best things we did. So it's really an all hands on deck, not just IT hands that you have to have. And I, I think the other big learning, and Epic has actually changed its recommendations now based on our experiences to make sure you've got patient data for that will get you through an extended downtime if, if you're so unfortunate as to have that happen. Steve, from your perspective as the CEO and knowing what you know now, having been the victim of a major ransomware attack, what advice would you give our listeners? Pay attention to cybersecurity. It can happen to you. They're gonna to come to you asking for some dollars to beef it up. In general, I think it's dollars well spent. So I would strongly encourage people to understand this can happen anywhere, no matter how good your system is. It's hard to practice for this, but even running a tabletop, I think would be really helpful to actually imagine what it's like to be down more than the 12 hours that you've gotten confident and good at. Thank you, Steve and Doug. Truly appreciate the candid conversation. I know your perspective and the thoughts you shared today will help the entire field prepare for, defend against ransomware attacks. Again, thanks to you and all the men and women of University of Vermont Medical Center for what you do every day to care for our patients and our communities 